Well, good morning. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Psalm chapter 141. <clears throat> Psalm 141. As you've heard me say a couple times already, it's really good to be back. It was good to be back last week. Uh, of course, I was in a little bit of a different seat last week, leading worship. How many of you, this is the first time you've been here when Pastor Matt has led worship? Anybody? Anybody? All of you? Okay, good. Good. What was that? My fingers did hurt. They did. They did. <laughs> um, it's particularly good to be back this week and getting to share the word with you guys. Um, I missed community in the way we normally experience. I missed caring for you guys, being cared for. I missed my fellow elders. I missed preaching. Uh, but God was very kind uh, to me during that time. I, I hope to get a chance in some fashion or form, whether it's through writing a couple articles or maybe having a night together or something like that to, to share some of my thoughts and God's blessings during that time and thinking about rest. Um, a fellow pastor uh, in this area, we were visiting a church. Uh, well, uh, I mean, I'll say it was Pastor Steve Woodman uh, at Arbor, and we were there a few weeks ago, and I was talking with him afterwards, and he, you know, he had done a sabbatical uh, you know, a couple years ago, and, or a year or so ago, and uh, I was explaining to him some of my struggles, and he very uh, appropriately, in manner, tone, words, content, says, uh, it sounds to me like you're just terrible at resting. Um, and it was good for me to hear that. It was very appropriate. Um, but nevertheless, pastors, as many of you know, are very much on the front lines of spiritual warfare in a very unique way. Uh, I'm not saying that to ask for a pity party, but biblically, I, God's leaders are on the front lines of spiritual warfare in a very unique way. And something that's honestly for most of us hard to understand. And so for the sake of future usefulness, our elders felt that it was appropriate and necessary and good um, that I take some time to rest. And so I'm thankful for them, thankful for you all understanding that and trusting uh, their leadership and our leadership and... Um, I mean, even Jesus himself, you watch in the Gospels, retreats very often. Very often. He gets worn out very often. And he was the Son of God, right? Who had no hindrance in his walk with the Lord from any sin of his own. And he had to take time to rest. So, how much more so for us, right? So, praise God for that. All right, so here we are. We've been in this series. And I have to admit, I, I was on my way to church this morning, like, not, not freaking out, like, terribly, but like, wondering, do I have everything? Do I have everything I need to do what I need to do this morning? Like, I feel so out of practice. So, if I preach for, like, 90 minutes this morning, that's two reasons why. One, I have a lot to make up for, and two, I'm out of practice, and maybe three, I have too many words in my script and I could not cut anymore. I just couldn't find anywhere. 
So, you can pray for yourselves this morning that you'll stay awake the whole time. Here we are talking, not that I would be shorter, because that wouldn't be good, but that you would persevere with me. We're talking about placing ourselves in the streams of God's grace, right? That we can't take God's grace and make him, like we can't make him give it to us. We can't bend his arm to give us grace, but... What we can do and what we're called to do is to place ourselves in, by, around, whatever you want to think about the metaphor, get as close to the stream of grace where God promises that his blessings and his grace tend to flow. We talked about reading the Bible, praying, and fellowship being the kind of three primary streams of grace. Admittedly, we have to, if we're, if, if, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, the idea of sitting down to read our Bible and study it, we must admit, I think, that that's pretty easy. Like, that's an easy stream of grace for us to make happen. You might say, well, I'm busy. or what? Listen, that's easy. Rearrange your schedule, make it happen. That, that's pretty easy to do. Maybe hard to understand at times, but easy to do the action of placing yourself near that stream. It's also pretty easy to pray. Our prayers might be self-centered, they might be oriented towards the wrong ways, and so on and so forth, but the actual act of praying is pretty easy. It's also pretty easy to be around people and to call it fellowship. Again, it's hard to, as Rusty talked about a couple weeks or a few weeks ago, the idea of listening and living well together in genuine fellowship but it's pretty easy to be around church people and to call yourself a member and to even serve and do things. That's pretty easy. But what about putting yourself in the stream of God's grace called rebuke? The stream of God's grace called rebuke. How about placing yourself in that stream? Rebuke reproof, or correction. Now, as we get going down this topic, my working definition is basically I'm going to use those three words pretty much interchangeably, even though they carry their kind of their own little nuances and connotations. So we're going to talk about this, uh, this category that we're just going to call rebuke is everything from a mild correction like you know, I don't know if that's quite the right way. Like if that's morally right, I, I'm not quite sure. That would be more of a, a mild correction. <clears throat> All the way to you are walking in sin, turn now, or you're headed toward destruction. Which if you look up our definition of rebuke, that's what rebuke is talking about for us. So I'm going to talk about everything within that category. Basically, someone is, either is or potentially is heading in the wrong direction, or you are either potentially or are indeed heading in the wrong direction, meaning you are walking in sin, and someone comes and says, you shouldn't do that, whatever form that that looks like. That's what we'll be talking about this morning. So let me ask you these questions, kind of beginning with some self-reflection here. Hopefully you did renovate us and have already begun to think through some of these questions. The first one is this, how do you embrace the blessing of rebuke? 
I mean, do you embrace the blessing of rebuke? To what extent do you embrace the blessing of rebuke? I mean, do you have to get broken enough to finally see the rebuke as a blessing? I mean, I mean, this thing about for saying, who really sees rebuke as a blessing? I'm for just being honest. Let's read Psalm 141 as we think about these. We'll be in multiple different passages, but this is kind of where our topic for today is rooted in. Psalm 141, verse 3 through 5, says this, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds, in company with men who work iniquity. And let me not eat of their delicacies. And listen to verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Let's pray. Father, my my prayer is simply this, Father, that we would get over ourselves by your grace and see the incredible blessing that rebuke is and should be in our lives. Father, for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Let me give one other parameter kind of that we're going to operate into. We're going to be thinking in terms of rebuke, particularly received from brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, right? Even though rebuke can come in this form, and it regularly does, it can come through house gathering questions that Rusty writes. So oftentimes those are rebuke, but in a different form. <clears throat> we sing rebukes through song. I share articles, even satire, that are meant to be rebukes. Rebuke comes in different forms. What we're talking about mostly here today is the rebuke between a brother and a brother, or a brother and a sister, or a sister and a sister, particularly within the same body same local body. Listen, we live in a culture that cannot stand the idea of rebuke. I don't know if that's occurred to you or not, but, or if you've observed that, but the only rebuking that is acceptable in our culture is the rebuke given to those who rebuke. Let me describe, let me explain what I mean. Those who would rebuke for the sake of moral standards, for the sake of God, or even just general human rightness that we've held to, Maybe not knowing how we've held to those for the past number of decades or why we hold to those, but, but those who would stand for general morality and such, they get rebuked for rebuking the culture and said, well, rebuking's not okay. Well, then why are you rebuking? I, 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 this foolishness. But nevertheless, we live in a culture, we live in a world where we don't like rebuke. Listen, Adam in the garden knew he was going to be rebuked for what had just happened. Why did he go hide? I mean, there's multiple reasons he went to hide, but one of them was certainly that he was afraid of the rebuke. He didn't see the blessing in the rebuke that was about to happen. Try telling someone in our culture that they're wrong. You get labeled a bigot. You get labeled a mean, unloving person. 
My favorite, you get unfriended on Facebook. Or you get hidden and you don't know it. Unfortunately, the same attitude is present in the church. The same, I don't think we realize how much the same aversion to rebuke is just as much a part of the church as it is a part of our culture. Just, again, for reflection's sake here, and particularly proving this point, when was the last time you were rebuked, reproofed, corrected by a brother or sister in this church? When was the last time? Whether you invited it or not, let's just, we'll even take both categories, whether it came to you uninvited or you invited it, when was the last time? Can you remember a last time? Again, not from the preaching or teaching, but in a one-on-one-ish, one-on-two-ish situation with a brother or sister in Christ. Hopefully if you're part of a DNA group that you can name, like because it should have been like the last time you had DNA. How often does it happen? Now I know some of you would never say this out loud, but you know I don't sin that often. Like I don't sin where I would need a rebuke that often. So that's why I can't remember. <laughs> You're really funny. I, I wrote in my notes here, what have you been smoking? Interpret that how you want to. The reality is, the reality is for many of us in this room is that we aren't letting anyone do life close enough to us to see and say what needs to be seen and say what needs to be said. Many of us have learned, particularly if you've been in church for any measure of time, you learn how to keep people just close enough, but yet just far enough away that they can see what you want them to see, and therefore say what you want them to say. It's just a form of control and manipulation. Of course, you think they can only see certain things, but I think even there you're quite fooled. But listen to the psalmist. Listen to the psalmist in verse 5. He says, let a righteous man strike me. It is what? It's a kindness. Anybody agree with that statement? Like, believe that statement. If you said yes, then see me afterwards and we'll see. Let him rebuke me. What's he say? It is what for my head? This is not a bad thing. Even though some of you don't like to get oil in your hands. It's not a bad thing. What does he say? It's oil for my head. What is it? It's like an anointing. It's it's a good thing for him. And then he says what? Let Let my head not refuse it. Why is the psalmist praying like this? Why is he speaking like this? Because he knows his proclivity is to refuse rebuke. He knows, like, this is not, I am perfectly walking in this way. No, he is saying this because he knows he struggles with 
the goodness and seeing the goodness and seeking the goodness of rebuke. His proclivities to refuse it, to, to label the giver of the rebuke so that he doesn't have to listen to the rebuke or to justify and ignore the rebuke. He knows that that's his proclivity and the reality is right, is that uh, is our proclivity as well. But he says his rebuke is kindness. In some ways, this psalm is a rebuke to himself as he's saying these words. But God, this righteous man's rebuke is kindness. It is good for my head. What we see with the psalmist here is that he wants to be in the streams of God's grace and he recognizes that rebuke and correction is God's grace to help. That's where we need to be. So the rest of our time is aimed at how do we, by God's grace, be there. Particularly when everything in our culture is going the opposite direction and everything inside of us recoils at the idea of being told you're wrong. First thing I want you to see is this. Rebuke is a fork in the road for a sinful soul. Rebuke is always, no matter its accuracy, a fork in the road for a sinful soul. Do you cringe? Uh, as this, Dave Mathis asked this question. Do you cringe at correction like a curse? Or embrace rebuke as a blessing? Like the idea of someone correcting you. Do you run from it like it's a plague? I must get away from here. One of the greatest themes in Proverbs is this. David Mathis says, Those who embrace rebuke are wise and walk the path of life, while those who despise reproof find themselves to be fools careening toward death. One of the main themes in the book of Proverbs. Listen, I want to make a couple comments about this. Don't underestimate the serpent and spiritual warfare in these moments. Like this fork in the road, rebuke. Now there's a fork. Don't underestimate spiritual warfare. Rusty pointed out last week, or a few weeks ago, Satan is telling you that you really are okay, that you will be okay, that you won't surely die, that you are not deceived, that you are well aware, well educated, sufficiently wise, that this person really just doesn't know you or didn't understand you. The next thing I want you to see is that this, this fork in the road, it's not just a choice between moving f- toward complacency or towards nominalism, but the thought in the book of Proverbs is that the fork in the road, one leads to death, eternal destruction. That's what it leads to, not just a less happy life. 
not just some inconveniences, but death. On the other side, it's not that listening to instruction and heeding wisdom, receiving rebuke, it's not that it just leads to goodness or it just leads to happiness or it leads to more conveniences or that it leads to less struggle. What it leads to is life. It leads to life, that's what he says. The fork in the road leads to one direction or the other. It is literally a life and death issue. When you are rebuked, it is a life and death issue. It's a fork in the road. Here's the big idea. Every time you're rebuked, corrected, and stand at the fork in the road, the question is this, will I choose life or will I choose death? That's what's at stake in that moment. What's not at stake is getting your feelings hurt or whether the other person did it perfectly or not, or not even whether the person was right or wrong about you. What's at stake is, will I choose life, or will I choose death? Even if the person is wrong, you still have a choice. Will I choose life, or will I choose death? Will I respond in humility, seeking the truth, or will I respond in pride, bringing out my inner lawyer and proving that I am right and I am good. It's a fork in the road. Listen to these warnings for the one who rejects brotherly or sisterly correction. Proverbs 10, 17. We will move rather slowly through here so that you can write down every passage. 1017. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. As I see this happen all the time. A person is corrected, they reject the reproof, get mad, and then influence other people to go astray with them. But he said, listen, whoever heeds instructions on the path to life. Again, this is a life or death issue. And it's, this, is, this is the thing we, because of our individualism and our isolated ways in which we live our lives, here's part of his point here, and this is just a side thought, is that those who reject reproof don't just impact their own lives negatively, but impact the lives of those around them negatively. Moving on. 12.1. All these are in Proverbs 12.1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. But he who hates reproof is what? You can say it. The Bible says it. Yeah, let's do it together. But he who hates reproof is stupid. Proverbs 15, 5, in the first part of that verse, a fool despises his father's instruction. Proverbs 15, 32. I think this is quite interesting. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself. Despises himself. It's going to bring ruin 
to himself, is not caring for himself. I mean, think about that, right? What drives rejecting reproof is self-preservation. Pride and self-preservation. I need to have this, whether that's feeling good about myself or feeling self-righteous or looking like I have it all together. So I gotta preserve that, so therefore I'm going to reject this reproof and I'm gonna prove that they're wrong and I'm going to preserve my life. But here what he says is that actually quite the opposite happens. That if you do that, I'm gonna preserve my own, I'm I'm going to in pride reject all of this, what actually happens is you destroy your life. You despise it. 13, 18. Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction. Huh. Poverty and disgrace. Listen, look, look at your own life. Think about this this week. Where in my life is there poverty and disgrace? Or am I emotionally impoverished? Is my emotional health a disgrace to God? Is my thought life impoverished? It's likely that it's because you've been ignoring instruction. Proverbs 1, 25 through 26. Listen to these words. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. Back to the end of Proverbs 29, verse 1. He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck. Listen to these words, church, listen. Well, suddenly, well, suddenly, the idea is that it, it comes upon them quick. Be broken beyond healing. Eternal destruction. That's what's at stake. Listen, I, I, hope, I hope these passages scare you. I hope that they strike fear in your heart when it comes to missing the grace of rebuke. This is, these passages, this is meant to strike the foolishness from our hearts and our minds. Listen to this. Back to chapter 1, verse 23. If you turn at my reproof, what's he say? Behold, if you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. 
And what do we know about God's words, right? They give life. They lead to the path of life. Jesus is the word. He is life. He said, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. See, the wise recognize rebuke as a gift of incredible grace. The fool runs from rebuke, but the wise see it as a gift. They see it as a gift. But listen, not just a gift that you could take or leave, but a gift that you cannot live without. Proverbs 25.12 says this, Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. What's he saying here? He's saying that the reproof, the rebuke, the correction is gold. It's gold. Now, I get it, that's lost on some of us because we're like, at ah, gold, whatever. But take some of this most precious. And he's saying, that's his point, that this reproof is like gold. It's an ornament of gold. It's a display of gold and goodness. Listen, if we turn at God's reproof, the proverb says God will pour his spirit to you. Listen, life, hear this, life is given to those who at the fork in the road choose to turn toward the rebuke. Now, Rusty was, uh, was good in saying, hey, make sure you address this. Listen, it's okay to feel wounded. Like, you're going to feel wounded. Like, right? I mean, if you're living in sin, which is coming from your flesh, you're going to feel wounded. The question is, is how do you respond to that woundedness? Which path will you choose in that moment? The path of, well, I'm just not going to talk to you anymore. The path of self-justification. The path of crying and manipulation. The path of self-defensiveness. In that moment, what path are you going to choose? Or will you choose the path of humble consideration and likely repentance? Listen, most of the time, most of the time, in almost all rebuke, there will be something for you to repent for. Did you hear me? I, I know some of you are like, well, wait, wait a sec, I could think of at least five or ten. See, that's, that's my point. Because what just welled up inside of you right in that second was pride. So right now, there's something for you to repent of. <clears throat> Listen, they, they might only be 1% right about you and your situation or your action or your thought or whatever. They might be 1% right. But if they are 1% right, then there is 1% that you must repent for. Why? Because God deserves the glory. Because he paid the price for that sin. That 
Now, I will say this too, as a side note. Remember that if you're trying to minimize it to 1%, you're probably not being repentant, okay? But listen, the humble, the humble see that reproof is an act of love, is an act of love. We're gonna drive towards this point for pretty much the remainder of our time. The wise, the humble, see that the reproof is an act, or that reproof is an act of love. Uh, David Mathis was, was, was really fantastic here. He said, reproof is an act of love. Listen to this. A willingness to own that awkward moment and perhaps having your counsel thrown back in your face for the risk of doing that person good when a spouse or friend or family member or associate rises to the level of such love. Right? What is the level of such love? That they would risk having their counsel thrown back out. They would risk being abused. Like there's a, there's a Proverbs, Proverbs 9 where it says, when you give counsel or you instruct a scoffer that you will incur abuse. You get abused. I, listen, I've been abused many times in giving people rebuke. And I'm sure I, I know I have abused people back when they have rebuked me. But the fact that someone would come to you willing to risk that, do you understand? Risk that. Risk being hurt by your words in response to your just rebuke. Don't you understand that it takes profound love to do that. And we should be, David Mathis says, profoundly thankful that someone is willing to do that for me. You know, one of the greatest things I remember about my grandfather was his humility in receiving rebuke or correction. Even from someone younger than him, such as myself. Now, uh, listen, I, I, I say that very carefully. Let me nuance that. It wasn't like I just had the edge on my grandpa and was, you know, right? I, I, I don't want to give that perception. I mean, like, like maybe the one time. And his humility in receiving of that rebuke from someone that's half his age, less than half his age. You see, I, I think he had learned by God's grace to enjoy the blessing of rebuke. He didn't get defensive, he didn't bring up a hundred other issues. He was wise enough to understand that God's voice could come through this situation. The next thing I want you to see is that we must enjoy the grace of God's voice in your brother or sister's voice. Enjoy the grace of God's voice in your brother or sister's voice. So in many ways, this is like a culmination of the other three graces, right? 
This is God's voice coming through the voice of fellowship in the body. And there's no way you're going to receive it without being prayerful, right? You're walking in the Spirit. It's just not going to happen. I mean, unless you're trying to prove self-righteousness, right? So now I'm going I'm to stand here and take it. But you know darn well that later on you're just going to dismiss it all. You're going to find a way to justify it later. Proverbs 19.20 says this, Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. What's he say? Listen to advice and accept instruction. Listen, a follower of Jesus, a follower of Jesus is humble enough to see that God's wisdom and care come often through the voice of a brother or a sister in Christ. Now, obviously, like we talked about at the beginning, it could come from that lost associate at work, that person, who, your boss that doesn't love Jesus. I mean, God's rebuke can come through them. We're talking here specifically about a brother or sister in Christ. Pastor Rusty said a few weeks ago, as you pass through the valley of the shadow of death and the shepherd comforts you with his staff, you will discover that he has fashioned his people to act as his rod of rescue. His rod of rescue. The voice of God when you're in sin. But who, again, who would want this? Like who would want to do this and who would want to receive this? Like who would want to be the one rebuking? Who would want to receive rebuke? Here's who. Those who believe Colossians 2.3 in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This Christ that we have. That person would. More on that in a bit. Listen, those who have it all figured out, though, have to secure their own treasures and have to secure their own treasures their own way because they don't believe the treasure they have in Christ. So that's why in that moment of rebuke, we get so protective. We get so offended. Because we think we have something to protect outside of that which Jesus has already secured eternally. And so what you're saying in that moment is that which Jesus died to secure eternally is not enough for me. I must protect this over here. Listen, this should, this should be more than just like how David Mathis said, putting up with the rare occasion of rebuke. It's more than just learning how to get through that rebuke or dealing with it when that comes around. He says this, We'll not just suffer a brother or sister speaking into our lives on rare occasion, but invite them to do so. And when they do, embrace it as a blessing. He goes on, Even when it's a rebuke poorly delivered, and the timing and tone are poor, and the motivation seems suspect. Listen to these words. We'll want to ransack it for every grace of truth, and then repent and thank God for the grace of having people in our lives who love us enough to say something hard. You'll want to ransack it for every ounce of truth. Right? That 1%. 
that 5%. Listen, those who understand its blessing will invite it into their lives. But those who think they have enough blessing earned by their own self-righteousness will run from it. Will make excuses to not get it. Well, no one knows me well enough or no one wants to be my friend or those who think they have enough blessing by their own self-righteousness will run from rebuke, but those who understand its blessing will invite it into their lives. Those who are humble and understand its blessing will search the rebuke for any ounce of truth. Why? Because that one ounce of truth is offensive to the God they love. To the God that loved them in that sin and rescued them from it and is pulling them out of it. Just a side note here as well. We should especially beware when there are multiple voices saying the same thing to us. When there are multiple voices saying the same thing, it's highly likely, highly likely that you are resisting the very reproof of God. I want to encourage you, and this is for your good. Listen, when, when us elders, we share lots of, of shepherding situations going on in our church. If, if I'm shepherding these people through this issue or whatever, a lot, if not all, of that gets shared amongst our elders. It gets shared for multiple reasons. One, so that they can look out for your good as well. So that Two, so that, so that I can be challenged in my perspective. Am I counseling the right way? Or am I seeing this the right way? Or, hey, have you seen this as well? Yeah, I have seen that. Or, no, I haven't seen that. And we balance each other out try to in our reproving and our correcting. But what that also means is that oftentimes, particularly when an elder comes, is that they're coming with multiple voices. Even though you may only hear one voice, there are multiple voices behind that one voice. Listen, this is also, aside from the elder thing, this is a part of the point of Matthew 18, right? That you would go one-on-one and then two come and then more, the body comes. Why? Because these people are seeing the same things. Maybe not all of them, but more than one. Multiple voices. We should be very, very careful. I, I've seen it not work. I've seen someone hearing multiple voices and then them go find the voices that are telling them what they want to hear and find multiple ones of them. But I've also seen multiple voices work for God's glory and the good of that person and change that person's life. Multiple voices. But listen, if you haven't figured this out already, Enjoying the grace of God's voice is harder said than done, right? So many times we see the reproof of another towards us as an attack. We see it as unloving. Listen, it saddens me so much. So many times I've seen this in my own heart. I've seen my responses look this way and I've seen the responses of others look this way in the face of rebuke 
being told, well, I'm just not going to say anything to you anymore, or that's why I don't tell you anything, or why do you always got to bring up the Bible, or you clearly just don't know me. Listen, we love, talking about how it's harder said than done. Another example, we love when being rebuked to throw an assault back in people's faces. Well, you did this, or you didn't do that. For you nerds, let me give you a couple logical debate fallacies here, right? A couple examples, just two. One, when faced with rebuke, we will find one thing wrong with that person. It has nothing to do with the truth of the rebuke and use that to justify or dismiss their argument. That's called what? An ad hominem fallacy. Or another example. So many times, in the middle of correcting someone, they will bring up 15 other issues into the situation that seem to be related, and it's sometimes it's hard to decipher what's related, but they'll bring up 15 other issues into the situation trying to do what? To avoid the rebuke. What is that? It's a red herring, right? We love to do this. We, we, as, as Proverbs 9 talks about, we, 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 we even oftentimes cause abuse to those trying to rebuke us. Listen to Proverbs 3.12. For the Lord reproves him whom he, what? Loves. The Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he, what? He delights. As a father, the son in whom he delights. He re- Listen, this is what he's saying. He reproves the ones he loves, and he reproves the ones like a father who delights in his son. Did you hear that? That he, he, does, he reproves you. Let's, let's apply it specifically here. He reproves you through brothers and sisters who are messed up just like you. Maybe even worse than you. God reproves you through them because he loves you, and not just because he loves you, but because he delights in you. we got to run from rebuke, right? We don't want to hear correction. Something rebellious in us recoils, Mathis says. He goes on, he says, if we don't recognize our depraved nature and sinful practice, then rebuke will not be seen as a life-saving grace, but as an offense. How often do you see rebuke as an offense? The reason you see it as an offense is because you don't recognize your depraved nature and sinful practices. He goes on, if you acknowledge that we are flawed, selfish, and arrogant, and regularly sin with our words and actions, then we will learn to see a brother's rebuke for the tremendous grace that it is. End quote. 
Listen, what a grace it is to be loved by someone enough that they're even willing to endure the harm I might give back to them as a response to their rebuke. What a grace to be loved that much. And so we talked about the foolishness and the wisdom, the grace of, of being rebuked. How about on the other side of this? How about giving rebuke? The grace of giving rebuke. Now listen, for some people, giving rebuke's really easy. These are the people who are usually prideful, arrogant, who think so highly of themselves that to look at anyone else means they have to tilt their heads down. There's some of you just waiting for a license to start nitpicking the people around you. It'll be good for you particularly to pay attention. But for those, listen to me, but those who humbly love Jesus, giving the blessing of rebuke is really hard. It's hard. Why? They're going to toil over it. They're going to even struggle with their own sinfulness of worrying about it. They're going to have great concern. They're not going to be just concerned with, listen, if it's easy for you, it's probably because you just want to get something off your chest, not because you're actually concerned with the response, the outcome of that person's life. And if you are concerned about the outcome, if you're concerned about the reconciliation, if you're concerned about how that person might respond, it's going to be hard. You're going to toil. You're going to cry. You're going to pray hard. You're going to ask for counsel. You're going to seek the scripture, so on and so forth. Let's talk about some of these things. Listen, the love of Christ compels us to give rebuke, but in gospel fashion. The love of Christ compels us to rebuke, but in gospel fashion. Listen, we're talking about this sister to sister, brother to sister, brother to brother, so on and so forth here. But this has great application, right, to your boss, to your coworkers, to your children. Mathis says this, if we really believe that we are all sinners and that unchecked sin leads to pain and misery and eternal destruction, love will constrain us to give the gift of loving reproof. Seven steps Mathis talks about. I'm going to steal these seven steps from him to giving Christian rebuke. I know some of you are like, oh, yes, a list. Just like last week with Greg. Let me write these out. Seven steps to Christian, giving Christian rebuke. If, if you know, to summarize the last thing, to, to receive reproof is to head towards life, to Disregard reproof is to head towards death. Like that's what you need to have written down with lots of scriptures for the last section. Now, seven steps to giving Christian rebuke. First one of this. First one is this. Check your own heart first. Check your own heart first. I'm not gonna read the passage, but Matthew 7, 5, right? About checking the log in your own eye. So that you can remove the speck from your brothers. Man, he's making multiple points there, but one is, is, you got a log in yours, and his is probably just a speck. You see what he's trying to do there? Like, you wretched fool, be humble. 
Listen, if you find your eyes more often fixed on the faults of others rather than fixed on the beauty of Christ, you are already in the wrong place. You have no business. If the faults of others has your thoughts consumed more than the goodness of God, just stop. Dare I say, shut up and don't say anything until you and Jesus have worked this out. On the other hand, I'll give you a couple other kind of caveats here that it's good for us to think about. Make sure you distinguish between a wisdom issue and a doctrinal slash moral issue. It's just some good wisdom, I think, for us to consider here. Listen, if it's a wisdom issue, it might just need a simple discussion of wisdom. Maybe you don't understand all the pieces and you need to ask some questions and understand why, why are you doing it that way. And, and then you might be able to say, okay, here's some more information that maybe you don't have that might change the outcome of your decision. It's just a wisdom decision. Now, now, now depending on the wisdom issue, it, it can make a big difference, right? Listen, like within our eldership, wisdom decisions are paramount. They, they, they matter even more than at a layperson level. Like we, we hold each other to an even higher standard right? because the scriptures do. That we have to walk in wisdom as well. Enough on that. Wisdom may need simply a, a discussion or, or a mild correction even. Hey, brother, sister, you don't know this piece of information. And I know that it's important for your decision. A second, determine if it's something that bothers you or something that actually bothers God. That would be good to know as well. Does this just bother me or does this actually bother God? Now, it could be that it offends you. And you need to ask a question, well, should I be offended by this? And the reality is if it's offensive to you, then it, if, if it should be offensive to you, then it's, it's offensive to God as well. But maybe it shouldn't be offensive to you. You just need to get over it. So determine if it's something that bothers you or something that bothers God. I like what Mathis says here. Often the subtle expressions of sin we see in others catch our eye. Why? Because those sins in others find resonance in our own hearts. Listen, we see pride quickly because we are desperately looking for someone more prideful than us in order to compare ourselves to them to hopefully make ourselves feel better about our pride. So we struggle with pride. What do we look for? We look for pride in other people. We look for pride in other people. Take the log out of your own eye so that you can what? Go remove the speck. No, so that you can see clearly to go remove the speck. What's he saying? He's saying you're blinded by your own pride and your own sinfulness. Deal with that and then go. One of the greatest outcomes of following the Lord's commands in Matthew 7 is that it would spur on humility in you. It might be that you realize in that journey that, you know what, that speck I thought was there is not really there. But what just happened to you? You walked in sanctification. You were changed by God's grace. Number two, seek to sympathize. Seek to sympathize. Not with the sin, 
sympathize with the sin. Sympathize with the struggle. Why? Because whether you struggle with that sin, I'm sure you struggle with something similar. The loving thing, the sympathetic thing, is not to just let sin slide, but to bring to your brother or your sister's attention. Look what Mathis says here. Like, it's not loving to let the sin slide, but to bring it to his or her attention. That's the most loving thing to do. And he says this, isn't that what the most sanctified part of you would want as well? Like when you are humble and walking in the Spirit and you know the love of God and the price He paid for you, wouldn't that part, that moment, you want any sin in your life to be brought to your attention? This should lead us to a posture of loving humility like sympathizing with them, leading us to a posture of loving humility. It takes work, listen to me, it takes work to not come across as condemning. It takes concerted effort to not come across as condemning, particularly with your children. Someone you feel as though you have a right to talk down to. Now listen, now listen to me. When someone is in sin, remember this. You could be a loving, as loving and as non-condemning as Jesus would have been. But what is going on when someone is in sin? By, by the very definition of sin, they're idolatrous and deceived. Their idolatry, the thing that they're loving most, is being attacked. And if there is no measure of humility there or the Spirit at work, then you will never be loving enough to them. You will be condemning to them. You'll be condescending. You'll be preachy. But here's what you need to hear, particularly you must fight hard to be loving in your correction. Listen, remember, people define love differently. And if you're attacking their idol, it's not going to be loving. And I'm telling you this, that you have the courage to be faithful to the grace of rebuke. But nevertheless, fighting hard to be loving. Three, pray for restoration. Pray for restoration. Mathis' list here is just fantastic. Pray that you would give gospel hope and gospel-driven correction. That you would give gospel-driven hope and gospel-driven correction. Pray to gently hold your ground and not immediately backtrack if the person snaps back or their inner lawyer immediately objects. You've been in those situations? You go to rebuke, and the person, raw, right? Like Aslan, just gets after you. And what do you want to do? Like, you want to retreat. But listen, if your goal is not to be happy yourself, <laughs> to be liked, and your goal is their restoration, 
You can stand firm. Listen, I, I like what Matthew says here. Pray that you would be aimed not merely at righting a wrong or appeasing your own heart. And I'll add to that. Or not merely at pragmatics or the practicals. Pray that you would be aimed at biblical restoration. That them and God would be restored. Pray for restoration. Number four, be quick. Be quick. Think of the passage, don't let the sun set on your anger. Or passages like Hebrews 3, exhort daily. Be quick. Matthew says this, the ideal is that we live, listen, listen, church, everybody, stop, stop writing, look at me. The ideal is that we live in such honest and regular community and speak without delay and receive it with gospel-conditioned thick skin. That mild, gentle words of rebuke and correction are commonplace. Commonplace, meaning a part of regular conversation. A part of impromptu conversations. A part of this little conversation here is supposed to last for five minutes. Along with the conversation that's intentional, intentionally set aside for an hour and a half of working through rebuke. That it's such commonplace... He goes on, that sin is regularly nipped in the bud rather than given time and space to grow into the tall, nasty weed it will become. That's the ideal. We should have community with brothers and sisters. Listen, fellowship is where rebuke is commonplace. If rebuke is not commonplace, then you're not having fellowship. You have a friendship that tickles your ears. You have a friendship for your good. One that, as we talked about already, in the beginning of the sermon and in Proverbs, will lead you to eternal destruction. Listen, the reality is, is that by choice, some of us have positioned ourselves so far out of reach of regular rebuke that we have sin that has grown not into nasty weeds, but huge oak trees. And so here's what happens. So whenever anyone goes to touch us, just to give us a mild rebuke, it feels like they've dropped an atomic bomb on us. We become so unaccustomed to being challenged and rebuked with specificity. Oh, we like being rebuked from this podcast or from this blog I read, and now I can kind of deal with that. But when someone comes and says, this area of your life is not honoring to the Lord, because we've so distanced ourselves from that, every little prick, every little goad feels like a bomb dropped. But if you're in the habit of receiving and seeking reproof, then it becomes a way of life. It becomes just a part of conversation. You begin to expect it. And when it becomes that, that's when you start, ah, oh, it's a grace. It's a grace. You need to pray, but don't stay on your knees too long. Be quick. Number five, be kind. Be kind. 
Be kind. We must hurry. It's not enough. It's not enough for your correction to simply be truthful and reminders of God's gospel truth. Your tone and demeanor must match that of our Savior as well. Your tone and demeanor must match that of our Savior. There's a, listen, there is a place for atomic bombs, at least in this realm. When people's hearts, usually this is the appropriate and wise situation, when people's hearts are clearly calloused and hardened. Those are oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes the place for atomic bombs. That's kind of the progression of Matthew 13. Like you get to the point where now the church is saying, we don't believe you to be a follower of Jesus. That's an atomic bomb. Why? Because they've not listened to the voice of God through the church they're in community with. But most often, the kind of regular correction we provide for each other in community should be kind and gentle. Think about 2 Timothy 2, where he's talking about the Lord's servant, particularly in the context of elders here. But, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now again, I will warn you that when someone is loving their evil, their idolatry, their whatever it is they've placed their affections upon, correcting them will not feel gentle. But be gentle. Seek to be kind. Number six, be clear and specific. Be clear and specific. I know. You're, some of you are like, I lost you on the, I got to go rebuke someone at the seek to sympathize. Because you're like, man, I'm just not going to go do it anyways, okay? Like, it's just hard for me just to confront or what. I'm not a confrontational person. You don't need to be a confrontational person. You need to be a Jesus person, okay? Listen, I, some of you are like, Matt, you're a confrontational person. So you get to, no, I'm not. I'm an introvert who likes to be by myself, okay? That's what I am. I don't like confrontation. Love Jesus more than your I'm not a confrontational person. Be clear and specific, though. Be clear and specific. Hear me. Your kindness might send the wrong message if it's not matched with clarity. quoting Mathis there. Listen, if you, he goes on, if you have checked your own heart, sought sympathy, prayed for restoration, are quick and kind, then you should be empowered to be frank and direct. Now here's the thing. People who consider themselves a confrontational person usually are very frank and direct, but they missed the first five steps. If you find yourself skipping over those, right, as I said, Keep your mouth quiet. Go to the Lord. Too often I hear people in fear and in the name of kindness, not willing to do what is best for the other person, and that is call sin what it is. Sin. Listen, I've seen this this is not just a struggle for lay people, it's a struggle for all people. I know examples of pastors unwilling to call sin what it is. Sin. 
So listen, be clear, be specific, give examples. Don't go in with this big, like your big uh, prosecution file, right? Or like you're not, that's not, that's not what, if you feel like you're doing that, then probably something is unordered in your life. But you gotta have examples, you gotta have examples. Part of this is why we do DNA, preferably in groups of three, so that there's a second witness to that person's life, that they know enough what's going on in that person's life to go, yeah, you know what? I've at least seen some of that in your life. Be clear in what the issue is. Oh, you know, I just, I love you so much, and I just want to be kind and gentle, and, you know, I see this issue, and, and then... Right? And, then, and then their lawyer comes back out and then you kind of trying to be kind and you kind of back up and, well, you know, I, yeah, I don't, uh, right? And that person has, the rebuke has just gone out the window. Be clear and specific. Number seven, follow up. Follow up. Follow up if they respond well by loving them. By tell, as I, I do this with my kids often. When they respond well, I will tell them, listen, even though you messed up, I loved you even in the middle of your mess. And even if you wouldn't have responded well to my rebuke, I would have still loved you. Yes, there's going to be brokenness between us, but I still love you. But if they don't respond well, Follow up still with further expressions of love. Further expressions of love, even if they don't respond well. But listen to this. This is not a love that seeks to avoid the issue. So I see this all the time. Like I'm going to confront them. They don't respond well. So now I'm just going to like be in relationship. And there's not going to be any cost to their sinfulness. There's not going to be any result of their sinfulness. And so what happens, listen, is they just feel affirmed in their sinfulness. They feel affirmed in it. So it can't be a love that affirms someone in their sinfulness. It has to be a love that loves them in spite of their sinfulness. So it's got to be a love that reminds them in appropriate ways of their sinfulness, but says, I still love you. A love that seeks to remind them what you have said and what you said was for their good and that you have nothing to gain but their good. Remind them that you're happy to be wrong if the correction was petty, if it was subjective, and that you're praying for them as they consider your observation. Now, understand, I mean, there are exceptions to this treatment, right? There are times where you have nothing to do with them, right? But most of the time, this is our call. James 5, 19 through 20 says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Listen, the love of Christ for us is our key to unlock the grace and power of rebuke. The love of Christ for us is our key to unlock the grace and power of rebuke. 
Mathis says this, with Jesus in view, the one who loved me and gave himself for me, no longer must reproof be an assault on our very foundations and deep sense of worth, but reproof becomes a fresh opportunity for growth and greater joy. Growth and greater joy. Listen, the gospel alone, the gospel alone, hear me, the gospel alone gives us the ability to lean into rebuke and receive God's incredible kindness. Well, they just didn't say it to me in the right way. Or they just don't, they just didn't get it quite right. And listen, the gospel alone gives us the ability to lean into rebuke and receive God's incredible kindness. You want to know why it's got to be that way? Because no one will ever know you enough or ever be kind to you enough or ever say it in the right way for you when you're trying to preserve your idolatry. But the gospel, if you're a follower of Jesus, will always be enough for you to lean into rebuke and receive God's incredible kindness Matthew says it's only in Jesus can we find our identity, not in being without fault, but in being shown loved by God when we were still sinners, chock full of faults. Love is caring enough to rescue you out of your sin. But do you see that in the gospel? God's love, God's love for us is carry, was caring enough to rescue us out of sin. You see, you can see rebuke as a grace when you stop finding your joy, your fulfillment in being right, being without fault, being perfect, getting your way, and you start finding your identity in the Christ who loved you, not by ignoring your faults, but actually calling out your faults and then paying the price for them and loving you to change you from them. That's the person who sees rebuke as a grace. Matthew says this, with such a Savior to stead our feet, we can embrace rebuke for the blessing that it is. Let me ask you this. Do you understand that at the heart of the gospel is the rebuke of not just a sin or even your general sinfulness, but is the rebuke of the total wretchedness of your entire being. At the core of the gospel is God says, you enemy of God, turn from your wicked ways and place your worshiping eyes on my son Jesus. That's at the heart of the gospel, among other things as well. The gospel says that the path you are on is leading to eternal destruction. It's foolishness. Listen, that's like the ultimate rebuke, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but rebuking my parenting or rebuking I mean, my finances, rebuking the way, you know, I, I mean, that, that's going to be painful, but to say my entire being is an enemy of God. I mean, the problem is, is for some of us, these other rebukes are more horrendous to us than that one, which that says something. That's the ultimate rebuke. And many of us forget that rebuke every day. We should not forget that rebuke. As you once were. Ephesians 2. 
But listen to this. For many of us, we never get to hear any more content in a rebuke because at this point we close down. At this point we're done. We don't get to hear, we, we don't get to hear past you send and then we're done. Our lawyers come out. We're not hearing anything else. Another example for many of us we get to hear more than this because the other person won't shut up or they won't take my arguments and be convinced. But you don't really hear any of it. You don't really believe any because of pride and self-righteousness and such. So that's on the receiving side. On the, on the giving side, for many of us, our rebukes end here with you were wrong. Stop doing that. That dishonors God. And we don't go any further. You see, listen, the gospel doesn't stop there. And good gospel rebuke doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with you were wrong. Although it most certainly includes it. The gospel also says, while rebuking us for our total Complete sinfulness. The gospel says in Romans 5, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did you hear that? while we were still sinners. The gospel first rebukes us in our sin, but in the midst of that rebuke, he loved us so much that he died for us. There have been times I'm sure I've made others feel this way, and I know I have been made to feel this way as well. You feel like I'm going to rebuke this person and I'm going to die in the process. Listen, Jesus was willing to not only have the awkward conversation, but to die the death in the place of those receiving the rebuke. He says, you sinner, I love you. I'll die for you. And in many, many ways, when a brother or sister comes to us willing to face the potential wrath of our pride and arrogance, they're saying without saying, I love you. I'm willing to face your wrath for your Listen, when you believe that Christ died for you, the ungodly, you will not run from rebuke. You will not justify your way out of it. You will not put yourself in a place where people feel like they can't rebuke you. Instead, you'll begin to see rebuke, correction, reproof as the incredible grace of God that it is. Listen, Jesus didn't die to leave you in your ungodliness. 
He died and set sinners free so that sinners could help each other grow in godliness. Listen, Jesus, Jesus died for us while we were sinners. He knows the depth of our sinfulness. The one whose opinion that matters most knows the depth. He knows it better than you know yourself. He knows the entanglement of, you, of, of your sin in your life. He knows the ins and outs. He knows the, the little corners and he knows which way it wraps and how tight a hold it's got. He knows all those things more than you do. But Jesus didn't lie, die to leave you there. He died to set you free. And even in knowing all of that, he loved us and died for us. God could be loving you right now in the middle of a painful rebuke. In the midst of your brokenness right now, can you see the grace, the loving kindness of God in the midst of rebuke? Listen, if you can see the grace of rebuke in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you will be able to see the grace of rebuke through God's chosen people. Listen, the gospel, while declaring our utter sinfulness, he loved us and he died for us. Can't you see God's love and grace in the midst of rebuke? Let's pray. Father, Father God, please, please help our hearts and our minds to be so enthralled with the grace shown to us in the rebuke of the gospel and the death in the gospel for us that we can at least be Again, to see your grace, even your mercy, and certainly your love for us in the streams or the stream and the grace of rebuke. Father, I know for us to see rebuke as a grace requires incredible humility. Thank you that your son Jesus came and lived a perfect life. Set us free. Free from the bondage to our pride while paying the price for that pride. Though he had no pride in himself. Though he never needed rebuke. He died for those who need it every day. May we be so enthralled with the love that you've shown us in your gospel that we begin to see the grace of rebuke through your church. I thank you for your kindness to us. May we worship you for you are worthy of all our praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.